Good morning. Today's scripture reading is a passage, John 17, verses 1 through 10. And you can find it if you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles on page 1070, 1070. And I ask you to please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and the glory has come to me through them. This is, the, this is God's word. Over the next five weeks, uh, there's going to be a pause in the series on Ecclesiastes, and that will be picked up in the sixth week. And uh, I'll be preaching in a series on the Trinity. Now, you might ask the question, why the Trinity? And I believe the answer is captured in a quote from Ralph Smith, and he puts it this way. No doctrine of the church is more important or profound. No teaching of the Christian faith transcends our experience and understanding like the doctrine of the Trinity. At the same time, no doctrine is so essential to our Christian thought in everyday life. Pastors and their congregations have not really considered the implications of the Trinity. Once the doctrine is proved from Scripture, little more is taught about it. This is a tragedy, since the doctrine of the Trinity is the crux of the Christian understanding of the world. Obviously, an adequate statement of the Christian worldview must find its center in the Trinity. For the Christian God himself is the heart of the Christian understanding of the world. When this talks about pastors, it's talking about me. I preached and I taught for 30 years, but never really looked at the Trinity as the center of everything and considered the implications for our lives that the Trinity had. Oh, sure, I I believed in the Trinity. I defended the Trinity. I can prove through Scripture the Trinity, and I stand on the Trinity. I, could, I would tell you 
that we pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that God the Father and the, spoke his word, the Son, and the Spirit of God hovered over in creation. I can tell you that the Father planned out salvation. Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for us, and the Holy Spirit applied salvation to us. But I didn't have a full comprehensive view of how the Trinity affects all of life and everything in life. And it was only recently, after listening to a sermon and starting to pick up some books, that it all started making sense. It all started to come alive for me. And in some ways, what these books and preachers did is they gave me Trinitarian glasses to see our world and to see our scripture in ways I had never seen it before. And to see dimensions of life that I had missed. And so over the next five weeks, I'd like to share some of the things that God has been showing me. This morning, we begin more with the biggest picture of all. And that is the Trinity and life as we know it. And my proposition is that it is only an understanding of Trinity that really can put our world together and make sense of it. And I'm really going to say three things. One, our world revolves around love. Two, other world views outside of Christianity cannot explain the dynamic of the world that we live in and why love would be the center. And three, because the love is the center of the triune relationship among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is an understanding of the Trinity that finally gives us, makes sense of our world. Let's pray. Our Lord, you be our guide. We wish to glorify you through understanding Jesus Christ and his relationship to you. And it is your spirit alone that will apply that to our lives. We open ourselves to you, O God, this morning. Teach us. Amen. The biography of Steve Jobs has taken our country by storm. It was Amazon's best-selling book last year, even though it came out in October. But probably the most impressive thing, the thing that caught the most attention of anybody, wasn't so much the content inside, but a picture that is inside the front and the back cover. It's a picture of Steve Jobs with his leaning back in his chair with his hands behind his head, and he's looking at a computer. This picture has become so popular, it's in such demand that the owner of the photo has withdrawn it from syndication. Because it says so much about Steve Jobs' life. Steve Jobs' life was Apple Computer. 
And he didn't just want to produce computers. The, the motto of Apple's computer is, we will put a dent in the universe. It isn't, wasn't just about making computers. It was about doing something significant, something grand and glorious far beyond computers. He wanted to change the world. And he did. And what makes that photo all the more drawing emotionally is the fact that that photo was taken right after Steve Jobs received diagnosis that he had pancreatic cancer. As anyone who would be in that situation knows, when you hear words like that, all of a sudden, everything that seemed so important at one time completely melts away. And the only thing that remains are the very most important and central things in life itself. And as you look at that photo, you will actually realize that Steve Jobs isn't captivated by his Apple computer. He's captivated by what is on the screen. Because he is looking at his son, Reed, and his wife, Lorraine. You see, in the end, when it boils down, when it all boils down, it isn't about putting a dent in the universe. What's more important is the relationships in our lives. The most important thing is the people we love and the people who love us. That's what makes the world go round. We hear it in all of our songs, don't we? I mean, after all, without you, babe, what could am I? I mean, love is all sufficient. All you need is love. Love is what brings ultimate fulfillment in our lives. Adele sang it. We could have had it all if we had just kept that relationship going. But we see it not only in our songs, we see it in our psychology. John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth have studied and looked and, and shown us that it's very critical to the well-being of a child is the bond that they form, the love relationship they form with their caretakers. Ever since Abraham Maslow uh, put out his hierarchy of needs and psychologists have explored what are the core central needs in our lives, every single one of them has in their list either the word belonging, acceptance, relationship, or love. It's pervasive. It's what's central to contemporary ethics today. Joseph Fletcher, when he wrote Situational Ethics, he said we have to make our choices according to the situation, and the guiding principle for all decisions ever to be made should be love. And you know, for God it is. What Joseph Fletcher got wrong isn't the import of love. What he got wrong is that somehow he thinks his ideas are more loving than God's ideas, the God who actually is love. 
and that he has more wisdom as to what love is than what God, the wisdom that God has. But it's relationships that even hardwire our biology. A recent book that came out, uh, Daniel Coleman in uh, the book Social Intelligence, bear with me a little bit, but says this, Neuroscience has discovered that our brain's very design makes it sociable to a surprising extent that our relationships mold not just our experience, but our biology. The brain-to-brain link-up allows our strongest relationships to shape us on matters as benign as whether we laugh at a joke or as profound as to which genes are activated in T-cells. The immune system's foot soldiers in the constant battle against bacteria and viruses. That link-up is a double-edged sword. Nourishing relationships have a beneficial impact upon our health, while toxic ones can act as a slow poison in our bodies. It's hard to argue that the very center of our universe is relationships and love. But how do we explain this? If we turn to naturalistic explanations, we'd hear Bertrand Russell say that that love is the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Now, I want you to write that on the next Valentine's card. I have a wonderful accidental collocation of atoms that's what I do. That's, what, that's what's behind all that's in my heart for you. Uh, we know love is more than that. Atheistic evolution would say, well, love is grown out of chemical reactions that result from our need to procreate and then for our species to continue to provide security for our children. So basically our Hooking up relationships is all about procreating. I tell that to uh, the college culture today of uh, friends with benefits. Or how does that view explain sacrificial love? Such sacrificial love that one would give his life for a stranger or one would give his life even for an enemy. That doesn't jive with survival of the fittest. So we turn to religions. Can religions explain why love is the center of our universe? Uh, polytheism, there are relationships. There's multi-gods. There's relationships, but all of the polytheistic relationships I know are not centered on love and self-giving relationships. They seem to be more on power and glory. In pantheism, where the universe is equal to God and everything in the universe is God, God is impersonal. How does an impersonal God create that which is, in, is personal? How does an impersonal God that has no relationships create at the center of all relationships? And so we turn to the monotheistic religions. And I'm taking Christianity out of that for the moment. The monotheistic religions which have what I will call a unipersonal God. We in Christianity believe in a tri-personal God. 
a unipersonal God in Judaism, where it's Yahweh, that's it, or Islam, it's Allah, that's it. From eternity past, they are the only ones that existed. How can love be the center of a unipersonal God? Because there is no relationship for that God. Love takes relationship. And so the only valid explanation for why our world, if it is hardwired according to the very nature and essence of the God who created it, would be that a triune God who has had an eternal love relationship among himself. And that love is so great that it wants to pour itself out into a creation and puts its fingerprints and imprints of love and relationship on that creation. And that's precisely what we see in Scripture. Now, we don't have a verse that says, here's the Trinity, here is the relationship among the Trinity, and therefore here is the relationship to the world. And it's one of the reasons we as Christians, as we so value the Bible, if we stay in individual passages without putting it all together, can sometimes miss this. And so today I want to just take a look at a passage that is kind of like a peephole through a window into the relationship of the Father and Son that we can then extend to the Holy Spirit itself. And it's found in John chapter 17. Jesus starts and he says, oh, let's put this, this passage in context. This passage is the Bible's version of the Steve Jobs photo. Jesus is facing imminent death. After he prays this, he's going to a garden where he's going to be arrested, tried, crucified, and he will die. He is facing the end of his days on this earth. Steve Jobs looked at a photo of relationships that were so precious to him, central to him. Jesus Christ prays to a God whose relationship is central to him. And this is what he prays. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Now, as we first look at this, this doesn't look like Jesus is making about the father. It seems... First of all, that its glory seems to be more central than love. And I will say this, glory is very important in divine nature and in human nature. But that's something we're going to cover and going to show over the next few weeks, the import of that and the impact of that. But this morning, we really only have time to, to zero in on the love. But Jesus does pray, Father, glorify me. And at first, it sounds so selfish and self-centered. Lord, make it about me. I'm about to die, so would you probably really make it about me? But he isn't saying that, is he? Look at the next phrase. Father, glorify me so that you 
might be glorified. You see, Father, I know that the world will glorify you when they understand your love, your care, your compassion. And that's going to be shown if they understand the sacrifice I'm making on your behalf and that you were the one who sent me. You see, Jesus is interested in glory, but for the sake of the glory of the Father. And that's exactly what happens when Christ goes to the cross. Uh, the most quoted verse of all the Bible is not, Jesus so loved the world that he came to the world so that we can have eternal life. It's God sent his son so that we might have life. He gave his only begotten son. See, Jesus said earlier, in, in, he said, you know, the greatest love is that if a, a person would give his life for another person. And, and that is an incredible sacrifice. Can you imagine? How much more could you love a person than to give your very life for them? There's only one step. There is actually one step above that. If you would give the life of a child you love. I think probably almost any adult here had said, if, it was, if you had to give either your life or the life of your child so someone else could live, whose life would you give? Almost all of us would choose our own life to give. You see, as much as Jesus loved us by giving his own life, it is to the glory of the Father who gave his only begotten Son for our behalf. And so Jesus wants the world to get it. Glorify me. Have them understand. Have them value what I'm doing. Because then they will begin to understand your glory and what you've given. It isn't Jesus demonstrates his love toward us while we're yet sinners. He did. But Paul says, God demonstrates his love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's why he says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That's what it's all about, Lord. Father, it's all about your glory. It's about you. But then he says, And now, Father, glorify me in the presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So he comes back to his glory, and it actually says, gives us, again, that peek into the eternal relationship of the Father and Son, that they had a mutual glory, and they mutually glorified each other, from the eternity past. Now, that's exactly what you want to happen in a love relationship. When you love someone, you make it all about them. But you also cherish and treasure the love you receive from them. Because the perfect love relationship goes both ways. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Lord, I want to return to you and have that glory you're giving me as I have glorified you it's not, a, I'll glorify you, so give me some glory back. It's that beautiful picture of that mutual, eternal love relationship where they exalt 
can glorify and magnify each other. Wouldn't that be a beautiful marriage? And, and that's what father and son have. And it continues in the next verses. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. And what we see in this next section is he begins to talk about his work and the people God gave him. And what we see is this beautiful union in their work together. And again, a great marriage relationship is one where you are working together. You are touching lives together. You have the same interests and the same passions about the same people that you might do something dynamic for them and in them. And that's what really has charged Jesus up here. He said, I went out and did everything you wanted because that was your heart was my heart. And I am so excited that I had the opportunity to attach my disciples, not to me, but to attach them to you. And so we read it like this. I've revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they've obeyed your word. Now they know. Now they know that everything you've given me, all the things they're excited about me, actually came from you. I gave them, because I gave them your, the words you gave me. They knew with certainty that I came from you and that they believe you sent me. You see, what Jesus is saying here is, my life here on earth was an expression of who you are, and I am so excited, I am so thrilled, it is so wonderful that they got to see you and really ultimately glorify you by the things I did on this earth. You see, you feel the love of father for son. Verse 10. All I have is yours. And all you have is mine. You know, this reminds me of the Song of Solomon. If if you read through the Song of Solomon, there's a very interesting dynamic in two statements that Shulamith, the, the woman lover, makes. At the very beginning of the book, she says... My beloved is mine, and I am my beloved's. And that's, of course, it should be a mutual love relationship. But notice how she begins, just like every immature relationship begins. It's, my beloved is mine. Isn't that the way every every dating relationship starts that way, isn't it? We don't go out and say, boy, I want to date that person because I'll be so wonderful for them. No, it's like, who can really... Who's going to help fulfill me? Who's going to bring happiness to me? And so an immature love relationship starts with, my beloved is mine, and I'm my beloved's. I know I I have to give, and it's a great mutual relationship, but it's first and foremost about what I get out of it. Later, as that relationship matures, she says this, I am my beloved. And he is mine. You see, it changes. It's secondary what I get out of that love relationship. It's primary what I give out of that love relationship. And we see in Jesus' words that second order. 
All that is mine is yours. And all that is yours is mine. As we continue through this, just very quickly, verse uh, 12. He says, While I was with them, I protected them, kept them safe by that name you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed. And what he's saying is, again, that special care they had together, that treasure that the Father gave the Son and his disciples, Jesus treasured and he kept and he is excited that he was able to keep that treasure to give them back to the Father. In verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still here in the world so that they may have my joy filled in them. And what Jesus is so excited about here is this wonderful joy that I have in a love relationship, this dynamic giving, mutual glorification relationship, I'm sharing with them. And I want them to have the same joy that I have. I want them to enter into this eternal dynamic relationship that we have. And then... He says in verse 21, he's praying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And what you see is this oneness that the Father and Son had unity in purpose, in relationship, in goals, in life, in passions. God wants us to experience as well. And then the final verse of this chapter. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And here's the declaration that the love relationship is an eternal relationship of the love the Father had for the Son, the Son had for the Father, and Jesus wants that to overflow to us. That's why God is love and why this world was made to be fueled by love. Because as the scripture says, God made us in his image. And if central to his image is relationship and love, central to ours is relationship and love. But we might sing like the Black Eyed Peas do. Where is the love? I look around the world, right? Where is the love? They sing, they rap this. Where is the love? It just ain't the same. Always unchanged. New days are strange. Is the world insane? If peace and love are so strong, why are there pieces of love that don't belong? Nations dropping bombs. I mean, they sing what we feel. We, we know this world's supposed to be about love. It's supposed to be about relationships. It's supposed to be about peace. So why, where do these pieces that don't fit come from? Nations dropping bombs. The answer to that is twofold. One is, though God loved us, and this world was created and began to revolve around love, we, humanity, rejected God's love. 
And when we rejected God's love, we lost the fulfillment that we were going to have from God's love. And so we turned to other things to get that fulfillment. As another song says, we were, we were looking for love in all the wrong places. And when we did that, we turned our back upon God. We messed up our lives and we started to compete with one another to gain fulfillment rather than to come alongside each other. And that ultimately has broken our world and broken our world into what we see today, nations dropping bombs. As a, a Native American teaching, to paraphrase one, it says, there is a wolf of love and a wolf of hate in the heart of every person. We can explain that wolf of love by the fact that we are created in the image of a God who is love. That wolf of hate is the result of pushing away the love of that God and ending up recreating world in the image of those who seek life selfishly outside of God. Our world is broken. But there's a second answer to where is the love, and it's even hinted at, if we follow the trail of the black-eyed peas again, same song, they say, Father, Father, help us. Send us some guidance from above, because people got me questioning. They got me questioning, where is the love? You know what? People got me questioning where the love is, too. Even when I look at this people, this one of the people, I go, where is the love? But he says, Father, Father, can you send us some guidance? He did more than that, didn't he? He sent us love. Despite the fact that we pushed him away and rejected him, he never rejected us. While we turned our back on him, he never turned his back on us. While we came under the judgment of God and in our world, God sent his son to take that judgment so he could recreate the world into what it originally was meant to be. And as the church moves forward, the world should be getting a taste of that love and that transformation, that love that flows from God. When we understand the Trinity, we understand the dynamic of what's happening in our heart, why that love, why that relationship need is there. When we understand the fall and the rejection, we understand why the hate is there, why the world is broken. It is the consummate explanation for our world. And yet it's very interesting is when Christians speak with skeptics, sometimes we treat the Trinity as a lost stepchild that we want to keep in the closet. I mean, it's certainly not one of the first things we bring up. Oh, yeah, I believe in a triune God. I mean, we have enough trouble with I believe in God. You believe in God? 
But to say, I believe in a God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh, so you believe in three gods. No, I believe in one God. No, there's one. But you just said there's three. There's three persons in the one Godhead. And, well, how can that be? And you go, blah, 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 blah. It's an embarrassment to us. And so we certainly shy away from it. But in reality, the Trinity is the ultimate apologetic. For it is the dynamic, it is the truth that can explain what's going on inside each of our hearts and can explain our world. It is something we should never be ashamed of. It is something we should proclaim but be able to show why love? There's no other system that can explain why love, why relationships are the most important thing. It is the constant explanation for all of our love songs. It's the explanation of why psychologists see bonding, love, belonging as central to human development. It explains our biology. And it explains the most important event of all of human history. For outside of the Trinity, why would a God so love this world that he would give his son to a world that would crucify him? He's a God of love. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this peek into the Steve Jobs photo moment in Jesus' life. We see it was all about you. I pray, Lord, through this series, we might be able to, as Jesus prayed, enter into that dynamic relationship with you, with one another, and then feel your loving heart for the world around us. Lord, you be our guide through this series. Open our eyes through your word and our hearts through your spirit. Amen.